Well, good evening. Thank you for that. That was wonderful. We just do that again next week. I mean, all the spring breakers, you know, we'll just do it again next week. Yeah, that's what I think. If you would turn your Bible to Daniel 3. We were taking a break from Genesis just for a couple of weeks because our college students are predominantly not here, and we're in that very important pass on marriage and, uh, passage on marriage, and, you know, they're hearing a different thing um, in some of their classrooms and uh, in their peer groups, and so I wanted us to look at that with, with them here. And Daniel is a wonderful passage. We're seeing a, a tyrant in Eastern Europe right now. And it looks like he's in control of things, and we need to be reminded, as we saw last week in Psalm 2, that he's not. But also, this is about life in Babylon, and as a culture becomes progressively secular, it becomes like Babylon, but we see that God is with his people, even in Babylon. So I thought for a couple of weeks we could look at some texts from Daniel to remind us that in spite of what we might see empirically with our eyes, or here with our ears, uh, our God is not a novice. He sits enthroned. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this evening. Singing the gospel is how I prayed. And thank you, Lord, for these, these wonderful people who love that gospel and love to sing it. Now may we behold you uh, through the preaching of your word. And we pray that this word would go forth in power and in the Holy Spirit tonight, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this next week is the 49th anniversary of John McCain's release after being held captive as a prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam, during the Vietnam War. Uh, Most of you know, or many of you know, that he was the son of a high-ranking naval officer, and he graduated, in spite of that, fifth from the bottom from the Naval Academy. And so he knew he didn't have much of a career in the, in the Navy with that. So what he decided to do was volunteer for combat duty uh, in the Vietnam War as a Navy pilot. And on the 23rd mission that he took, he was shot down over Hanoi. And in the crash, he broke both arms and both legs, and he was captured by the North Vietnamese and put into a horrific prison where his wounds would not heal properly. Now, when his captors discovered that he was the son of royalty, uh, his father was a a distinguished military uh, officer, they offered him uh, opportunity uh, to be released but only if he made a a certain compromise, which was basically amounted to some kind of propaganda. They said, you'll get out of this hell, out of this pain, out of this disgrace, if you'll just testify to our gracious gracious handling of you. Well, he refused to betray his country and his, his fellow prisoners of war with such falsehood. And as a result, he spent five and a half years in uh, the, the prison there, half of that time in solitary confinement. In fact, they used his injuries, his war injuries, as a means of torture. 
uh, during that time. But McCain's story reminds us that in a fallen, sin-stained, broken world, doing the right thing doesn't always guarantee pleasant outcomes. And we're so enslaved to pleasant outcomes, uh, we are prone to compromise. But doing the right thing doesn't always guarantee that. But for the people of God, even more so than for a soldier, duties are, um, are ours and outcomes are the Lord's. And we see that with Daniel's three friends tonight, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So in Daniel chapter 3, uh, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a, had a dream uh, of this image, this great image which represented his kingdom. And after interpretation, uh, he learned that a, an inferior kingdom would would replace his kingdom, and then a second kingdom would replace that kingdom, and then a third kingdom, and then a fourth kingdom. Earthly kingdoms always have a termination date. We need to remember that. But then another kingdom would come. It would be an enduring kingdom. It would crush all of these other kingdoms, and it would never be destroyed. It would break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Of course, we know that is a kingdom of the kingdom of God, that would be expressed through this son of man that we read about in Daniel chapter 7. But here in chapter 3, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar is stubborn. And in verses 1 to 7, we see a command from Nebuchadnezzar that demonstrates his stubborn, sinful uh, will. Look with me in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth uh, 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now this is a, appears to be an, a, a, a statue that is completely gold which connects this story with what uh, the dream that he had in chapter 2 but in chapter 2 the image just had a head of gold and now he sets up a statue that's not just a head of gold the entire statue is one of gold it seems after those sobering words but after you chapter 2 verse 39 when his kingdom would be replaced he is seeking to resist that word from God. He is seeking to resist that prophecy. Uh, he will have nothing of that. And so he sets up this kingdom that's all gold, kind of spitting in the face of that prophecy from God. Um, he seems to be declaring, there will be no other kingdom after mine. Isn't that how tyrants think and how tyrants act? Now, again, this image is gold, and the size of the image says it all. It's around 90 feet high. Think about that, nine stories. Uh, 30 yards, 90 feet high, and nine feet wide. So this is a massive uh, statue, and it's very likely a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And one thing is clear here. Daniel is stressing that this image is set up by the king. Notice, he set it up on the plain 
of Dura. Now, why is that an important verb? Because that word is found in chapter 2, verses 21, or verse 21, when it says that it is God who sets up kings. And it's the same verb, and I believe Daniel here is being intentional with this, this language. And so, I think, um, set up, which is found nine times here in chapter 3, is conveying that Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to be sovereign and in so doing he has failed to understand he's not the one who's sovereign. God's the one who's sovereign. Again, chapter 2 verse 21, it's God who sets up kings. Again, tyrants think that way. And so we see the intentionality here and I think that's why it's intentionally ironic that we read six times in these first seven verses the words King Nebuchadnezzar because he has this perception of himself that he's actually in control of things. One other, I think, important observation, he's in the plain of Dura in the province of, of Babylon. Now that echoes something from Genesis. Do you remember what that echoes? Well, this is the area where the Tower of Babel was, was built. It's the same language on the plain in Babylon, Genesis 11, verse 2. And so again, uh, there in Babylon, or the Tower of Babel, that was the event where humanity sought to make a name for itself apart from God. Nebuchadnezzar is doing that. And all tyrants seek to do that. Well, notice in verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Again, there's that verb, set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Again, when you see a verb repeated in a passage, it's intended to get your attention. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, that's kind of like a harp, a harp, a bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, the issue here, I think, is simple. Will the image of God that God has created to bow to him bow down to the image of man made by man? That's the question that we face every day. When you go to work tomorrow, that will be the question you face. And it's always the issue. Especially now, this is a difficulty for these people when you consider Nebuchadnezzar's brutality. 
He was a wicked, he was a evil, he was a violent man. So for instance, in uh, Jeremiah 29, 29, or 22, it says that he took Zedekiah and Ahab and he roasted them. Now that's, that's some horrific language. Or in 2 Kings 25, 7, it says that he slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah right before Zedekiah's eyes, and then he put out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last thing he ever saw physically with his eyes was the murder of his sons. Nebuchadnezzar did that. And so you can imagine uh, the kind of fear and trembling when this edict was passed in, in Babylon. Well, notice in verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples... Heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. All the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image. This is like a, a parody of the Great Commission, isn't it? Except Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the Messiah. That King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Again, that verb. Of course, this is compulsory worship. It's not worship out of love and gratitude. I, I sat, I came back from Dallas on Tuesday, and I sat next to a Muslim woman, and she was very devoted to her God. And I asked her, I said, we had a great conversation, and I said, would you say that you are primarily motivated by fear and trembling or love? And she looked at me, and she said, I've never been asked that. She said, I would say it would be fear. Well, that's exactly what these people were motivated by. Now, we understand as Christians there is a holy and, and a righteous and a reverent fear for God, but it's not a, an anxious fear. Uh, it, it's a fear of that, that, is, that is birthed by love and, and adoration and gratitude. Well, that's not what we see here uh, in Babylon. Well, that brings us to the charge in verses 8 to 12 after the, the command. Uh, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down. And worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Again, this is the antithesis of the Great Commission. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so the obvious point here, there were only three that refused to bow down. Now, where's Daniel? Daniel's in a different place. Daniel refused as well, but he's, he's not living where these three men are living. So Daniel is not indicted here. But it does remind us, in Babylon, you will often be in the minority as the people of God. Just as these three men are. And, and so living in exile would not have been easy for these three men, especially given the wicked nature of this man's reign. 
uh, it would have been easy to compromise. It would have been easy to rationalize their compromise. Um, so, for instance, um, it would have been easy for them to say, well, if we don't bow down, uh, we're going to be put to death. And obviously, God doesn't want us to be put to death. They could have reasoned that, or secondly, um, they could have said, well, the Babylonians don't understand our laws, and uh, we don't want them to be offended and, and ruin our witness in the process. Or they could have reasoned, God will forgive us. That would have been the Southern Baptist way. I have eternal security. Um, <laughs> I'll just sin and, and know that God will forgive me. Uh, or they could have protested silently. So I'm going to bow down to this image on the outside, but on the inside, I am worshiping the true God. But that's not what they did. They didn't compromise. But here's another question. What's behind the Chaldeans' problem with these three men? Well, the text doesn't tell us. Uh, but in Daniel 6, we learned that a, there was a group of Persians who were jealous of Daniel's high rank. Um, since he was a Jew and since he was a foreigner. And these three men had been promoted very quickly through the ranks. Uh, certainly past others who had been working for the king and the kingdom much longer. So there's probably jealousy. But I would submit this also spiritual warfare. Uh, when God's people seek to be faithful in Babylon, there's always going to be spiritual warfare. And we see it here. So it's likely warfare that was expressed through jealousy. That brings us to the confrontation. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. And oftentimes the gods, it was believed they would set up these images of the gods and oftentimes those images were the king themselves so that the king embodied what these gods were. So it's very likely that the uh, image is of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Again, he thinks he is sovereign. And we know that he's not. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, I love this, and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They didn't know, in other words, what God was going to do. It wasn't a name-it-claim-it theology. They had no clue what God was going to do, but they knew what they would not do, and that is to bow and to compromise before their God. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here recognize 
that God's will and God's plan for them could very well be different than what they would find pleasant. And they were fine with that. They were willing to live with that. That's why this passage has been so important for God's people through the years in our own Babylons. We're to read about these men and go, that's the way I want to be. That's the way I want to uh, live my life before my spouse and before my children and before the people of God. You know, biblical faith has the assurance, the conviction to say, I know God, my God is able to deliver me. But it also has the submission to say, but even if he doesn't, yet I will trust him. And, and that's also why one of perhaps faith's finest hour in Scripture is found here. Um, with their three opposing words to Nebuchadnezzar's three words of burning fiery furnace. And their opposing words are but if not, verse 18. In other words, biblical faith isn't assurance in a particular outcome. This afternoon, Heather and I saw this commercial with this faith healer who, who's selling magic water. Uh, and, and, and if you order and you drink this magic water, you're going to get the job. You're going to get the promotion. It, it, you're going to get healthy. It, it, that's what it promises. Well, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is not the assurance of a particular outcome. It is assurance that my God knows what he's doing, and I'm going to trust him, that he's sovereign, that he's wise, and that he's good, and I will submit to that whatever it may be. Yes, we do rejoice when, when God delivers us in this life, but the Bible is honest with the fact that God does not have a cookie-cutter formula. Consider those who actually experienced deliverance in this life in Hebrews. I've got a few verses on the screen. Time would tell, would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and, and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I can get along with that, right? But that's only half the picture. In the very next verse it says, some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sewn in two. They were killed with the sword. They were stoned. They were sewn in two. Uh, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. So, so what are the possible ways that God could have delivered these three men? First of all, he could have certainly just outright delivered them from the fiery furnace. Or he could deliver them forever. And he could deliver them even from the temptation of 
idolatry by taking them to himself. Now, especially in a comfortable world that we live in, the West, uh, that's not as appealing as it is perhaps into a developing nation or a nation where it is dangerous to be a Christian. But in our world, it, it's not as appealing to think that that's really a blessing, that he could deliver us to himself through death. But here's the question, why is heaven not as appealing to us as it should be? It's because of health and wealth and entertainment. These masking agents. And, and that means that heaven does not have the appeal to us that it has had for most Christians in history. Most Christians have not had the ease and the luxury, the prosperity that we, we have access to things that kings in previous centuries could only dream of. <clears throat> the poorest of us in here have more than any king had centuries before. So heaven is not as appealing to us as it has been in previous days. And I suspect that the reason we don't esteem the value of that kind of deliverance is for that reason. We don't consider heaven to be as beautiful and glorious as the Bible teaches that it is. But think about this. In heaven, all pain, all suffering, all disappointment, all temptation, all discouragement, all sin are permanently done away with. You'll never be tempted again. And we'll be eternally present with our God and with our believing loved ones. And that is something that we should long for. Many of the hymns uh, <clears throat> have focused on heaven in, in previous um, centuries when things were much more difficult than they are now. Well, let's see how God did deliver them. In verses 19 to 27, as we come to the end of this chapter, it's, it's a way that uh, no one uh, would have perceived, not even these three men. It just was not on their radar. God can do things that is far beyond our calculus. The math of the kingdom is always different than the math of the human mind. That brings us to the companion in verses 19 to 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four. 
I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hairs of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. That's a third way God could deliver. Not from the fire, but in it. You know, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Of course, waters in Scripture are a picture of judgment. That's why we baptize and immerse in water. We're saying that the judgment that I deserve fell on Christ in his death and his burial. But he was raised from that judgment for our justification. He says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. So their deliverance also likely, remember, who is he writing to? He's writing to exiled believers. He's writing to people who are in Babylon, who've been exiled from their homeland. And so this deliverance likely communicated to them a hope, a forthcoming deliverance for all God's exiled people. They were just the coming attraction of that. In Deuteronomy 4, think about this. In verse 20 of Deuteronomy 4, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. And now the people of God were under the control of Babylon, which was a new furnace. That furnace represented the, the tyranny they were under in exile. And God had delivered them through this fourth man. You think Daniel was preparing us for someone? And God's covenant love was being communicated here that it was stronger than any pagan king's tyrannical grasp. And that's true for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine as well. Notice the confession. We're coming to a close here. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I will make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. And their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I don't believe that Nebuchadnezzar was converted here. I do believe he'll be converted in chapter 4. But not here. 
because he's obstinate and he's hard-hearted, as all tyrants are. But um, as we think about this passage, um, as Western Christians, it's easy to dismiss this and say, well, this how do we apply this to us? We, we're not confronted with anything like this, like they were confronted with. Um, likely no one is going to call us to bow down to a statue to them uh, and require us to worship it. But here's what I would submit to you. The threat of government overreach is a very real threat. It's always been the case even our founders were concerned about that as they wrote the Constitution. Uh, it's something we fled from, right? Well, it's alive and well. Even, and this is not, I'm not getting political. I, this is what Scripture teaches. Uh, th this is natural human government. It, there's a government overreach that is always oppressive for God's people. And, and the pressure to bow down to the idols constructed by this kind of culture grows stronger every day. Even in our president's last uh, speech, where he gave, uh, on, which he gave on Tuesday night, which we know was the State of the Union, he spoke of pushing the Equality Act. Now that's a problem. Because it would add sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes under federal civil rights law. Which would mean if it was passed, it would penalize everyday Christians, everyday Americans, for their beliefs about biblical marriage and biological sex. This would harm uh, employers. Uh, it would do damage to workers as they are forced to conform to the new sexual norms. Medical professionals would be pressured uh, to treat patients in ways that conflict with their, their beliefs, uh, their, their beliefs in the Word of God. It would affect women. We're already seeing that with men playing women's sports and no one saying anything about it. And then nonprofits like Christian universities and Christian seminaries and even in time perhaps even churches. You see, our God doesn't always shield us from all the distresses and dangers, but... In the midst of all of that, in the midst of the, of the loss, the, the, the betrayals and the difficulties, what this text teaches us, there's a fourth man. There's a fourth man who will be present with his people. We know this man to be the one that the Old Testament anticipates. This is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God, the God-man God Jesus Christ. And what this is teaching us is no matter what we face, we should not fret because even in the most heinous of circumstances, a fiery furnace, he will be there with his people. But the irony for us is that on the cross, when the fire of God's wrath fell on the Son of God, 
he was completely alone. He was completely alone. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had him. But when the fire of God's wrath fell on Christ, he was all alone. Now, why would God um, be with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but not with Jesus? Isn't that a good question? The answer is that on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, was taking into himself the pains and the sufferings that we deserve for our own idolatry. Every time we bow to an idol, a functional idol, we deserve the fire of God's judgment, a judgment that is far greater than a physical furnace. The true and living God rightly demands our pure and unadulterated worship. But in the case of his people, God took all that fiery judgment that we deserve and he poured it on the Son. Furthermore, his perfect faithfulness is now credited to us who believe. A faithfulness that infinitely exceeds the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their faithfulness points us to a greater faithfulness that we know and have experienced by faith in this one who wasn't just like the sons of the God or the son of the gods. He is the son of God who came for us to redeem us in Babylon and one day from Babylon. Let's pray, Lord, thank you for this passage. We pray that all God's people would take heed and trust you more and more. And Lord, that it would inform our Mondays through Saturdays when we're in Babylon, away from your people, reminded vividly of the exile that we experience. Oh Lord, may we follow the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but may we look in faith to the one, the fourth man who was with them, the Son of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.